All right, well, good morning, church. My name is Doug Fern, and if I can figure out how to get this mask off my... There we go. At some point, I'll start preaching to you, I guess, so... Um, one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my great joy and privilege to be able to open God's Word with you all this morning. I invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to take it out. It would be greatly helped if you do so, and open up to Romans chapter 12. Specifically this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at verses 1 through 2. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Just real quick by way of introduction, um, as a church, we're in the middle of a series um, that is des- that's called Images of Renewal. Um, if you've been around Parkview much this year, you know that we have identified this year, this season for us as a church, as a season of renewal. And uh, we thought, what better way to start our year together than by considering what renewal looks like? Um, as a church, we're developing a vision. We are in the process of trying to determine and discern what God has in store for us in the coming years. Um, but what we know is we do this. For this renewal to really take place, there are sort of five images that are really necessary for us as a people to be renewed. We've talked about three of them so far. Jesus, uh, repentance. Last week, we looked in Psalm 119. Pastor Foster walked us through the image of just the Bible and how necessary that is. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on doctrine, Doctrine. Next week, we'll take a look at love. This week, it's doctrine. And so the title of this morning's message is simply this, Doctrine Matters. Doctrine Matters, okay? Let's go ahead and look at the text for us, just these two verses, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I will read them for us, and then I will pray, and we will dive in. This is God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word that comes to us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us who doesn't hide himself from us, Lord, but you, you tell us real clearly in your word what, uh, what you have done and what you expect from us, Lord. And so we take great assurance this morning. Uh, we recognize that your spirit, your presence is here in this place, Lord, and we simply ask that you would take these words, which we believe in, and declare to be eternal and true, Lord, and would you take them, would you write them on our hearts and use them this morning to shape and to form us into the people that you have called us and designed us to be by your grace, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me now and uh, just bring your truth um, this morning. Help us to see it, embrace it, and obey it. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, just this week, um, I was sitting down in my my house and I was reading and my four-year-old daughter, Noelle, came and kind of plunked herself next to me and she had something in her hand. She had a, a book that she had gotten, a notebook she had gotten for Christmas. It was a little unicorn book. It was sparkly and it was cute. And she sat down next to me with her notebook in her hand, one hand and a pen in the other hand, and she started to just write. She's four years old. She started to write in a little notebook. And after a couple minutes, I was sitting there and she was doing her thing. I was doing my thing, you know, and I noticed just... You know, scribble after scribble, page was being turned after page was being turned. She just kept scribbling and turning. And after a couple of moments, I just glanced up to her and I said, sweetie, just the, it was the, like the most adorable thing in the world. Okay, you just have to trust me on this. I looked over at her and I said, sweetie, what are you writing in your notebook? And she looked at me very happily and confidently and she said, Papa, I'm writing my dreams. I'm writing my dreams in my notebook. And I thought, that is so 
It was just the cutest little thing. She's just sitting there scribbling down on this notebook all of her dreams. Now, it's, it, I don't know for sure if it's dreams as in like things, her hopes and aspirations, things she wants to come true, or if it was dreams like she was recounting things she had dreamed while she was sleeping. Which one of those two cases is, is the case? I'm not totally sure, but what I do know is that what she was writing in her notebook, what she was writing down in her book, in her book were, were things that could be, right? The, the things that maybe weren't necessarily reality, but things that could become reality. Folks, in this season of renewal, do you know what God is inviting us to do as a church collectively together? To dream. To dream. Together to dream of what might be. As we consider Parkview and what it looks like to do faithful gospel ministry in this church, in our community, what the Lord has called us to in this season of renewal is to collectively dream about what might be. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I dream about how God can use us as a church, use me as a minister of the gospel in this community, I get excited I get excited. Now, there are, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, for some of us, this is a scary place to be, right? Because there are uncertainties ahead of us. We, as a church, have seen us just kind of collectively walk through one challenge after another this year in our church and our community as a nation, right? And what lies ahead of us, there are some uncertainties. And for many of us, that can cause us to be uncomfortable. But guys, I want to just encourage you this morning this is an exciting time to be a Parkview Church, to be a part of building something that God could use to transform lives, to make disciples in our community and throughout the nations in the years to come. This is an exciting time. This is an exciting time. Now, as we move into this season, as we find ourselves in this season of collectively dreaming of what might be, this morning's text comes to us and it simply reminds us this. And this is really what the big point of this message is this morning. Is that as we see ourselves Parkview as a church that is shaped by the grace of God, we must be a people who are committed to and who delight in the doctrines of God. If we want to be a church that is shaped by the grace of God, we have to commit ourselves to delighting in the doctrines of God. Put it in another way, during this season of renewal, brothers and sisters, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. To help us see this, as we look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I want to point out a couple of things. The first thing I want to just point out this morning is the relationship between doctrine and life. The relationship between doctrine and life. Look at our text. Paul starts off in this, in this, in this verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In, in my Bible, I have that phrase underlined, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. By the mercies, his appeal to the church at Rome, is he's appealing to them by the mercies of God. Now, this is a, a pivotal 
passage. This is a pivotal section in the letter in, the, in this book of Romans. It's a, it's, there's a transition that happens here in the book of Romans here in chapter 12. We see it right away by noticing the word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. What, what he is about to say comes from everything essentially that he has already said. Not, not just the verse that precedes verse 1 of chapter 12, but really the entire book of Romans up until this point. Everything that he has written in chapters 1 through 11. This is highly significant. Paul will build all that he is about to say for the next three and a half chapters on all that he has already said in the first 11 chapters. And if you were to sit down and to read those 11 chapters, you will discover one glorious reality after another. But you'll also likely notice that there is something missing in those 11 chapters. There's something missing, namely imperatives, commands, exhortations. In fact, of the 315 verses, only six of those verses contain commands, specific instruction. This is what you should do. Missing in the first 11 chapters of this amazing book. Why? Because the focus of those first 11 chapters is not on what we should do. Rather, the focus is on what God has done. And with quite amazing simplicity, Paul summarizes all of these 11 chapters with this extraordinary phrase, by the mercies of God. That phrase is a simple summary of everything that precedes it. These words are completely loaded with meaning and refer to God's plan of salvation that he has laid out in the preceding chapters. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that is completely the work of God himself and is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The truth of the gospel, this, the doctrine of the gospel, Paul goes on to say the wonderful reality of the gospel of Jesus, he says as he begins to write here in chapter 12, does not just live on paper. It does not just live on paper or just live in our heads. It has real life, everyday implications. It places demands and, and affects the way that we live our life every single day. The way that we conduct ourselves. Paul's point here is that our belief is so critical because it shapes our behavior as a people. Paul commands them that based on the doctrine of the gospel, that they are now to take action. Specifically, he says, what action is that? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To summarize what he's saying here, in light of God's mercy, as you consider all God's grace, all of the truth of the gospel, give your bodies, he says, to God. In light of what God has done, here now is what you ought to do. Gospel truth demands gospel living. The epistemological realities of God give birth to the ethical realities of the community of God. The truth of who God is and what he has done, they give shape to how we live our lives in the context of our community. 
You know, if one of my favorite studies, if you were to just go back throughout history and study, one of the things that I love to study and to learn about is the early church. The early church. Such a, a period of time when, when the church in the first couple of hundred years experienced just tremendous explosive growth, right? Just rapid growth. And it's, it's so fascinating when you study the early church and how it just expanded throughout the region and just exploded on the scene. And begin to ask yourself, why? Why did this happen? Especially when you consider it didn't explode through military force or through political power. It exploded. It's amazing to study some of the reasons why that existed. And when I study it, I just, I want that for myself. I want that for our church. I want to be a part of something that, quite honestly, is completely unexplainable by human categories. I mean, I don't know what, anything that gives me a, more, a, a greater thrill in life than that. And to study the early church, you see how it explodes. Listen to how Francis Schaeffer describes sort of the reason why it exploded. Listen to this. He says, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they, they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. In the midst of the visible church, a community which the world can see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known, he says, simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Parkview, let this describe what our church looks like in the years ahead. A church that is, that is compelling to our community because we have orthodox doctrine and we have orthodox lives that are consistent with that doctrine. You see, we, we, here's the deal, guys. We all have a theology. The question, we all, we all ascribe to certain doctrines. The question is, do we have the right theology? Do we believe in the true doctrines? Which brings me to the next point. We have the relationship, there's a, there's, a, there's a relationship, a direct relationship between our doctrine and the way we live our lives, be, between our belief and our behavior. And so because that relationship is simply unavoidable, we must be a people who have sound doctrine. Okay, so the second point, the necessity of sound doctrine. Listen to what he says in, as he goes on in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need to give ourselves not just to doctrine, but to sound doctrine. One author defines doctrine as this, actually in his book titled Sound Doctrine, okay? This is his definition of doctrine. A summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible, so it is true, and it is also useful for life. What is doctrine? It's a summary of the Bible's teaching that's both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. Now, if I was a betting man, I would bet that there are some among us this morning listening perhaps right now, maybe in person or online, not completely convinced that doctrine really is all that significant for our renewal efforts here at Parkview. Maybe see the Bible... Uh, recognize the Bible um, as, you know, it's useful in my life. It's useful in my life. Yeah, I give myself to, you know, basic understanding of reading the Bible, and I can see its, its, its usefulness in my life. But the last thing maybe you would consider yourself is a theologian, 
somebody who studies the doctrines of God on a regular basis. I mean, after all, that's why you have pastors, you have staff at the church. That's their job, right? Not necessarily my job. Maybe not quite convinced of the need for you to, to really lean into the doctrines and understand them. But here's the deal, guys. Doctrine is simply unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Non-doctrinal Christianity is an impossibility, okay? In fact, if you're sitting here thinking that this is really kind of maybe useless and would prefer to not focus so much on doctrine, the truth is that in and of itself is doctrine. You are believing something to be true and making a, 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 a decisions in your life based on the belief that you believe to be true. It's, unfortunately, it's bad doctrine, we would say. It's not sound doctrine, but it's doctrine just the same. The real question is not if we have doctrine, but the real question for us is whose doctrine or which doctrine we believe. That's the real question. What we're after as a church, what we should be after as followers of Jesus is to give ourselves not just to doctrine, but to give ourselves to sound, true doctrine. Jesus himself came and taught that there is a right way to think about God. That there is a right way to think about ourselves as Andrea just got done talking about. There is a, there is a right way to think about our humanity. There, there's a right way to think about creation, about sin. There's a right way to think about redemption, about the church, about the end of all things. Jesus himself came and taught this. Right? And as he laid down sound doctrine, he knew that the effect would be, for many, division. Some who wouldn't ascribe to his teachings, who would reject his teachings. But for us, we want to be a church that lays hold of his sound, true teachings. Here's one illustration I've heard before that's helped me kind of understand the necessity of sound doctrine. Imagine with me, if you will, Frank. Frank, our friend Frank, is a mechanic. Okay? But he's an unusual mechanic. Where other mechanics find natural laws such as gravity unavoidable and even useful, he suspects them to be sort of arbitrary. He, in fact, he sees them as obstacles which really hinder his creativity. You can imagine how this would go for Frank and for maybe his clients. Not so well. Vehicles would be brought in for repair and returned in worse shape than they were brought in. Frank's eventually would go out of business. And whatever Frank might think, the laws of physics are built into the nature of creation. He just can't avoid them, right? So it is with doctrine in the Christian faith and our life. Believing it is is unnecessary or believing that it is unnecessary or, or not that important would have us looking like Frank, right? If the relationship between doctrine and life is unavoidable, on some level, we really, church, we are all theologians, every single one of us. And what we believe gives shape to how we live, Think about it. What we believe to be true shapes, informs the way that we view ourselves, the way that we treat direct application, our bodies, or don't treat our bodies. It's shaped by how we think and what we believe to be true about our bodies. Our appreciation for cre God's created world, for the world that we navigate, the world that we live in, 
the way that we treat. I can remember a couple years ago, there was a car that was parked ahead of me, and the door just opened, and a, like two big bags of McDonald's just went right in the middle of the street. I was like, my goodness, you know what I mean? Like that is, I can't, it's just like that. It's going to be like that, huh, right? I just, just, just obviously just dumped it out, right? I mean, that person has a doctrine, has a belief, has an understanding of how they should treat creation, and their behavior reflects that understanding. The way we, we participate in the political process or choose not to is determined by our beliefs, by our doctrine. The way we view the unborn and actions that we take to defend or not defend them is shaped and formed by our doctrine. Whether we are a people who have justice and, and who execute justice and, and, and show and demonstrate compassion to, to our neighbors and to those who are maybe even different from us, who look different from us, who come from different parts of the world, the way we treat other people is determined by what we believe to be true about other people, right? It's shaped by our doctrine. Our participation or lack thereof in evangelism and witnessing to the wonders of Christ is determined by our belief, right? In eternity and, and significance of human dignity and value, our doctrine gives shape to whether or not we even share Jesus. Our doctrine is so vital, is so necessary, it's so critical that we have sound doctrine just as we live our lives. I mean, every single thing comes, do we, what do we believe? What do we believe? Now, it's important to keep in mind this. We must remember that the transformation that Paul is referring to here of our minds, this transformation is, don't get it twisted, it is a supernatural event, okay? Our minds have already, if we are in Christ, our minds have already been changed, transformed at conversion. And they are now set, according to Romans 8, 5, on the things of the Spirit, God has given us a new appetite, a new set of desires. In our inner being, we delight in the law of God, Romans 7, 22. In our deepest selves, we are no longer rebellion, rebels excuse me, against God, but we are primarily recipients of God's grace. That's our true self. That's our reality. God has done that. Our transformation is the result of his intervention, of his divine grace. It is supernatural. But this renewing of our minds, this transformation of our minds is supernatural, but it's also simultaneously continual. It is ongoing. At the same time, while we've been given new minds, we need to bring our thinking and our behavior in line with our minds that Christ has given us. That is why Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Tim Keller puts it like this. The key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. The discovery of, the new, of a new implication or application of the gospel. Seeing more of its truth is an important stage of any renewal. So what this looks like for us is that we are people like Psalm 119 who cry out to the Lord and say, open my eyes that I may behold the wonders, the wondrous things out of your law. Right, as we come and approach God's word, God's Bible, over and over again, we rediscover his truths. 
We discover his realities. We, we dive into the doctrine and bring understanding to how this book is one story and how all the pieces fit together and give a shape and direction for how we live our lives. And we return to those truths as a people, as a church, time and time and time again, continually rediscovering them. New implications, new applications. As our life changes, we continually return to this book for guidance and direction time and time again. Our renewal, the renewal of our mind is supernatural, but it's also continual. It is ongoing. It doesn't stop. Thirdly, I want us to notice real quick. I'm going to try to just see how this fleshes out just a little bit. I want you to consider with me the practice of sound doctrine. So we've established already that the relationship between doctrine and life is unavoidable. It's unavoidable, okay? So as a people, we want to commit ourselves to sound doctrine, okay? So what does the practice of sound doctrine look like? Too often, maybe you're guilty of this, I know I am often, we create neat little categories in our life. We draw lines in our lives and we designate certain areas of our lives you know, religious areas maybe in certain aspects of our lives, you know, certain hours maybe even of our week are dedicated to maybe those religious activities. Well, nothing could be further than from how God has actually designed us to live our lives and to utilize his word. As we saw last week when the psalmist says that there are wondrous things out of this law, he wants God to open his eyes. He is not riveted by words that only speak specifically to the religious areas of his life. Rather, he's discovered a whole lens by which he now views all of his life. And we should too. That's what the Bible does. It doesn't just speak to little categories, little segments of our lives or our week. It speaks to our entire lives, all of our relationships, the way we live in the context of a family, the way that we live with our roommate, the way that we navigate the campus, the way that we sit in our classroom, the way that we work in our jobs. The Bible informs and gives shape to all of those areas of our life. All of life. In Scripture, it's really important. This is one thing that Christians can do, has just a history of doing, of separating, divorcing doctrine and practice. We must never do that. We must not be a people who says, no, we can study it intellectually over here, but from an ethical, practical standpoint, it doesn't bear any weight on how we actually live our lives. True, true doctrine is never a mere theory that lives on paper alone. It's not simp simply conceptual. It has legs. And it takes shape in the context of our life. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul lists a series of gross sins and categorizes them as contrary to sound doctrine. See, folks, our morality finds its footing on sound Christian teaching. It's the way the Bible talks about sound doctrine and its value, its importance to us. We must also recognize, however, that good doctrine is not magic. It's not magic. It is possible for someone to profess sound doctrine and live lives that aren't in line with the truth that they profess. We have a word for that. Many of you have experienced that, maybe even been tempted towards that. It's called hypocrisy, okay? It's also possible, on the other hand, for one to live well, right, to live, you know, according to sort of certain moral standards, and yet ascribe to bad doctrine. That, that is called inconsistency. 
neither scripture nor history commends either of these paths. These are not good options. Hypocrisy or inconsistency. Many of us have seen the negative effects of that. Many of us have maybe even had negative experiences in the church because we've seen that live out. That is not a path for us moving forward. Certainly we have to avoid either of those options as a church. Sound doctrine, however, gives shape to us to become a church of grace. Let me just give you one example, practical example. I want us to consider together this morning, collectively, sound doctrine and unity. Okay, sound doctrine and unity. How does sound doctrine promote unity here? Does it? Let's explore it. I mean, this is a good time to talk about unity. After all, I think maybe our nation is as divided as it's ever been, right? We see divisions all over us. Our world is torn by divisions. Western culture may pride itself on tolerance and acceptance, yet division in our nation runs deep. Socially, politically, economically, racially, on and on we can go. We are divided and the distance, it seems like, between one group and another is just getting wider and wider as we go on from one year to the next. In recent years, racism has been, you know, legislated against. It's even been stigmatized, yet racism persists. We know that's true. We see it all around us. Racism and discrimination are still really ugly realities that our world faces, that plagues our nation specifically. The church, however, we know, is supposed to offer an alternative. The church is not supposed to be categorized by all those divisions that the world divides humanity up in. If you read your Bible much, you'll know that the church really does offer an alternative. The beautiful thing about the church is that we are a people who come from all different backgrounds and are united by something more powerful than all of those categories. There's something that unites us which transcends all the differences that can all too often divide us. A couple of examples just in Scripture. Consider God's word to the early church in Galatians and Colossians. Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are all in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11. Here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. See, Paul confronts, in the book of Galatians, he confronts the racial pride and the division that plagued the church. He says, listen, there's a way that we are supposed to be. As a people, we are supposed to be united. Christ died to create one new man. In the letter to Galatians, Paul directly confronts the the division and the racial pride that existed in their church. The church was relying on circumcision and observance of the law for their salvation. As a result, the ethnic Jews or the law-following converts to Judaism could claim superiority over the Gentile believers. This is not, Paul looks at this happening, one group elevating themselves higher than the other group, and he says, let it not be. Let it not be. It's not supposed to be like that. He confronts even Peter in the book of Galatians in his racial pride, and listen to how he diagnoses his problem in Galatians 2.14. He says this, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The ethical social problem that had developed within the church was really, Paul says, a doctrinal problem. All this social divisions, the superiority that's happening, it's a matter of doctrine. A misunderstanding and a misapplication specifically, he says, of the doctrine of justification which he teaches us that we are justified. The doctrine of justification is a beautiful doctrine. It applies to every single one of us, and it's the good news of the gospel, that we are justified 
and made righteous by God on the basis of our faith alone, of his grace and our faith alone. That's why we can be justified before God, declared righteous, pardoned of our sin, a new creation. Understanding this reality, this truth, this doctrine leaves zero room for ethnic superiority. It leaves zero room for social snobbery, and it leaves zero room for chauvinistic superiority. It, it leaves no room for that, Paul says. This doctrine becomes really the basis for our unity as a people. I mean, what more do we need right now? We come to inherit the promises of God. We are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, not because we hold a particular degree, not because we belong to a particular political party, and not because we live in a certain part of town. We're justified by grace, through faith. We're declared righteous in Christ, and we are unified as a people. I mean, that is doctrine in action. And when we see the divisions that plague our society that, that are knocking on the door of the church, we can, we can be a people who just kind of throws out one little Bible verse at a time and say, well, I know somewhere, okay, I know that this happened, I know that. Or we can dive into the doctrine of justification, for example, and we can be fluent with the gospel and we can say, not here, and here's why. I mean, there is nothing that you can do that is more practical than to study this book, to delight in the doctrines of God so that we can be a church that is transformed to look like His grace, not our agenda. Church, Parkview, let's be a people who delight in the doctrines of God, who, who come on Sunday mornings with an expectation not to be amused, not to be entertained, but to be educated in the doctrines of God, to rediscover. Let's walk through these doors on a Sunday morning expecting to rediscover the glories of the gospel. Let's walk out those doors expecting to put it into practice. That's the church that God's called us to be. Now, we don't know what it's going to look like 10, 15, 20 years from now, but let's let that one be a non-negotiable. So, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling fired up. Maybe you noticed, all right? Guys, this is so important for us. This is so important for us. And, and just in one year alone, think about all of the social things that we've had to try and figure out. How, do, how does God's word come to bear on these issues? And we face them every day at work. We have to give answers to them when we're in school, sitting in our classrooms. Maybe we live in a... In a, in a, in a, in a in an apartment with somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, a roommate maybe, and the conversations are happening constantly. I mean, let's, let's be students of this book and let's commit to not just knowing it here, but living it out in our lives. Let's not be hypocrites. Let's not be inconsistent. Let's delight in the doctrines of God. One practical thing you can do, I had several, but I'll just give you one for the sake of time. If you are a member of Parkview Church or an attender, this would be one just really good exercise. On our website, we have a tab that says about, I think it just says about, I'm not totally sure what it says. But you can click on that, and underneath that tab it says what we believe. 
And it gives us, it lists sort of our statement of faith. It's basically doctrinal de declarations. This is what we believe to be true about the Bible. This is what we be believe to be true about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, not and on, several statements there. One good practice, maybe with a friend, a roommate, a spouse, maybe it's a family, is to try to, 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 try to do what I just did there with the sound doctrine and unity, okay? Look at one of those doctrinal statements and say, okay, First of all, do I understand, what do I believe to be true about God? What does the Bible teach about God? Second question, how does that shape the way I live my life? Like, just work that out together with somebody. How does this truth shape the way I go to class tomorrow? How does this truth shape the way I deal with these McDonald's bags that are trash, right? How does this truth shape the way I view somebody who's different than me? How does this truth shape the way I relate to somebody who doesn't know Jesus? How does this truth shape the way we relate to one another? Take those doctrinal statements. Figure out how you can practice them in the context of your life. All right? Very good. Would you stand with me? I'll close our time in prayer. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your truth, Lord. Again, I just can't thank you enough that we, this, this world is so, can be so tricky to figure out how to navigate, how to live in. Lord, I just thank you that you have not designed it in such a way that we have to figure it out as we go. Lord, but you've equipped us with your spirit, with your power. You have transformed our very minds. Lord, help us to be a people who exercise that new muscle that you've given us regularly and know how to apply it to our lives, Lord. Oh, help us to be a people who, who delight in studying your word and applying it to our lives. But above all else, help us to be a church that is shaped by your grace. We ask these things in your name. Amen.